really grateful to see everybody here this morning. A special welcome to all of our guests today. If this is your first time at Hillcrest, welcome. We're delighted that you're here. Be sure wherever you may be this morning here or at our Spanish Trail campus, complete a guest registration card this morning and let us know that you're here and uh, know that we're very thankful. We're praying for you. We've prayed for our church. We've prayed for these services at Hillcrest today. And we know that God's going to speak a good word from his word uh, to all of us who are here this morning. And again, welcome to those of you that are at the Spanish Trail campus this morning. Hope that you're doing well. A special shout out to my dear friend Jordan Christie, who is our worship leader at Spanish Trail. Today is his final Sunday leading worship at our Spanish Trail campus. Jordan and his family are moving to Valdosta, Georgia to take a church there. And we wish them very, very well. We know that the Lord is going to use them greatly in these important days. And so let's all of us together say thank you to Jordan for four years of wonderful ministry at Hillcrest. God bless the Christies. And a special welcome to those of you with us online uh, today. We're in a series of messages on some of the loaded questions asked by the Lord Jesus Christ throughout his ministry. The Bible is going to be open today to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And so if you're not there, be finding Luke chapter 6. Judy and I love to travel. And in the major cities that we visited, not only in America, but some throughout the world, one of the things that we enjoy doing is going through old neighborhoods, neighborhoods that have been around for decades and and decades. And in certain circumstances, um, those that have been around Uh, for more than a century or so. In my own hometown, that part of Nashville is Bell Mead. Anybody ever driven through the Bell Mead section of Nashville where the old money is? Can I have an amen? Or the last time we were in San Francisco, Pacific Heights, where the beautiful painted ladies are, or Charleston, South Carolina, walking down the South Battery there, Rainbow Road, those beautiful houses that have been there, many of them since before Uh, the Civil War, regardless of where it is, Savannah or Georgetown in Washington or all these different places, historic uh, part of San Antonio that I've stayed in before with some of the most beautiful homes in America, those that have been there for a while have stood the test of time. Many times we'll stand and we'll look at them and we'll think, my, what storms these homes have been through. And the fact that they're still standing today gives testimony to the person that was behind them, the person that drafted the plans and the person that gathered the materials and the person that oversaw the construction. Whenever you see those beautiful old homes that have been around for years and years and years, one thing you know for sure is that they had a builder that paid attention to the details. As we come this morning to the sixth chapter of Luke, Jesus tells a story that has a bit of that motif bound up in it. It's a story of two builders, two houses, one storm that produced two different outcomes. The story follows one of these powerful questions posed by the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry that's designed to focus the crowd's attention on the absolute importance of obedient faith, obedient faith, the absolute importance of a faith 
that obeys God as the most important possession of a disciple's life. Let's look at the text and you'll get a picture. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be in absolute control this morning. Speak to each of us. May his presence be real and his words be true, penetrating, transformative to each of us who are here today. We confess that we want to look, live, and act like Jesus Christ. And we pray that your word would shape us and mold us toward that end for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, this morning we come to one of these loaded questions of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is, of course, an important uh, set of teachings by Jesus that we find in Luke chapter 6. It's kind of the equivalent of what we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, a passage that we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is basically the same teaching in an abbreviated form. Luke tells us that Jesus is teaching on a level place rather than on a mountainside. And of course, these were teachings and life principles, spiritual principles that I think Jesus taught regularly throughout his ministry. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he went around from place to place teaching much of the same substance. And that's what he's doing here. And this question is one of the most important that he asks in his ministry, which is why it's one of the dozen or so that we're pulling aside to spend some time on. And the question is posed before he even tells the story. He uses this question to set up this very familiar story that deals with the importance of obeying Jesus Christ as a testimony to the reality of our faith. And the question is this, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? It's a very important question because it really describes how so many professing believers actually live their lives. There are many people, perhaps you know some, perhaps we have some in the room today that make a profession, a verbal confession of Jesus Christ as Savior Lord, but it's a lip service faith. They talk a big game, but their lives betray what they say they believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody ever observed that in Christian ministry or in the Christian church? We do it all the time. This lip service faith where people claim to follow Jesus Christ, but there's no pattern of consistently living in order to honor the Lord. It's almost like you're religious in form, but then once the service is over, you go out and you just determine to do what you want to do and live the way that you want to live without even giving a nod to the Word of God or giving a nod 
to this idea of living to actually bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, here's the thing. I think that there are many people who honestly believe that there's nothing wrong with that. And and that can be true for several reasons. One is because sometimes it's easy to get duped by thinking that as long as you're sincere about what you believe, that you're bringing honor and glory to God. But that's not true. Just because you may think you believe the right things in your life, that doesn't necessarily mean that your life is a blessing to God or that your life is bringing honor and glory to God. There are many people in the world that think that because they sincerely believe, and you can ask them this, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Absolutely, I believe that. And then they go out and live more like the devil than they do like Jesus. They may sincerely believe In the work of the atonement of Christ, they may sincerely believe that Jesus shed his blood for the sinful condition of humanity, but they don't take consistently obeying Christ with any kind of seriousness whatsoever. The people who were on uh, this flat place, wherever it was, listening to Jesus teach that day were people that deeply admired Jesus. They deeply respected the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he feels compelled to to give them this teaching. They respected Jesus for what he had taught. They'd never heard a rabbi teach like Jesus had taught and they respected Jesus for his powerful works. Many of them have observed Jesus perform these great miracles and change human lives. But, and many of them, frankly, not only referred to Jesus as Lord, as Jesus indicates in the question here, it's emphasized. They didn't just call him Lord, they called him Lord, Lord, right? It's kind of a double emphasis. And of course, the word Lord stands alone because when someone is legitimately Lord, he the boss, amen. He's in control. We acknowledge that. We surrender and follow that leadership. And yet there were people that not only referred to Jesus as Lord, they referred to him as Lord, Lord. That's kind of the equivalent of what we would say, King of Kings, right? It just emphasizes the reality of who he was. Not only was he a teacher, he was like master teacher. And so that's what this crowd, many of them referred to Jesus as. King of kings, Lord of lords, master teacher. And they were very sincere. They admired Jesus. They respected Jesus. They were moved by Jesus. But it was all superficial. It was all superficial. It came up short because it did not result in any transformation of their human life. It was all verbiage. It was all uh, talk, all show and no substance, no consistent life change. So sometimes sincerity uh, can mask a genuine life transformation. You think you're all right with God just simply because of the words that you spout and what you may think you believe in your heart. For others, it's re- religious observance. That's, I've heard it said many times, religion can kill a person, and it really can. You all know we're not about religion at Hillcrest, amen? Couldn't care less about religion. What we care about is having a personal, life-changing, transformative relationship with the God who gave us life. And so you got to be very careful about religious form as a substitute for being born again and for walking in a daily relationship with Jesus Christ. These people were religious people who were listening to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is speaking to folks who took their faith very seriously, their religious form very seriously. 
And one thing he does not do in this teaching is he doesn't say that their adherence to their religious form, all the keeping of the law and all the keeping of the rules that they tried so hard to measure up against, he does not say that that was ever good enough to get God to accept them. That was actually standing in the way of real life change. In fact, that'd be the very thing that he would condemn most among the religious brethren of his day, among those who were faithful and religious to to rabbinic Judaistic form, Jesus' greatest criticism was their rabbinic Judaistic form because that had become a substitute for real life with God, which is always predicated not on rules, not on form, but on what? On faith. Real, genuine, life-changing, transformative faith. So that's kind of the purpose of this story. Uh, This story is here to help us understand the difference between shallow, superficial faith on the one hand and genuine, obedient faith on the other. And to help us with that distinction, Jesus first starts with a question and then tells a story about two different kinds of builders who build two different kinds of building And the application of the story falls directly on every single one of us, even here today, because every one of us in the room is a builder of some kind. Everybody in here is building a career, you're building a family, you're building a life. If nothing else, you're building a future. There are all kinds of things that you're building with your life. And the kind of life that you build is directly related to the quality of construction that you put into it. You put in the time and you build with quality, it's gonna show, but if you cut corners, if you do it your way, it's gonna show too. In fact, not only will it show now when seasonal storms come blowing through your life, and they will, but it'll most obviously show when this life is over And you face the inevitable storm that the Bible calls the judgment. Now and then, what you intentionally build your life upon makes all the difference between survival on the one hand and an epic collapse on the other. Now, With all that as a backdrop, let's turn our attention to the story for a few minutes this morning and what's necessary to build strong homes, strong families, strong careers, strong lives. Let me give you two or three things to jot down in your notes this morning. First of all, notice this. Jesus is teaching that nothing's more important than building your life on the right foundation. That's the most obvious takeaway from this story. This is, of course, a story of two general contractors, two builders, They're both involved in building homes, presumably their own homes. We don't know much about these individuals, but what we do know is that they had radically different building philosophies, didn't they? In Matthew's version of this story, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus describes one of these builders as a wise builder, literally a sophisticated builder. The Greek word for wisdom is sophos. We get our word sophisticated from it. And so the first builder is a sophisticated builder. The idea is he's a sensible builder. He uses just common sense to do the right thing to build his home 
in the right way. So there's a guy that he, he puts all the facts together. He measures the lay of the land, understands the grade, understands the weather conditions, knows whether or not he's in a floodplain. Then he makes a sensible, sensible set of decisions on how to build the house that he and his family presumably going to live in. That's the wise builder. And then on the other hand, there's the foolish builder. And that means a nonsensical person. The Greek word there is the Greek moros. We get our word moron from it. And so, uh, though I chastened my children whenever they would use words like idiot and moron, Jesus is going out of the way to say, this guy's a moron and you need to know it. He's not wise. That's the idea. He's foolish. Hence the translation, nonsensical, flippant, careless, casual. And that's the, pretty much the fundamental difference in their approach. One built in ways that made good solid sense, the other did not. And the primary difference in their approach, of course, was found in how they constructed the foundation of their home. The wise builder, Jesus said, dug what? Deep and laid the foundation. Cost a little more money, took a little more time, but he dug deep and laid the foundation on the what? On the rock, <clears throat> solid rock, firm foundation, anchored well. But the foolish builder built without a foundation. I mean, that is foolish. No foundation at all, man. This is just construction flat on the grade, right? He found a piece of ground and began to construct the frame right at the grade. Now, what's interesting is that after the two houses were complete, they probably looked a whole lot alike. You wouldn't have been able probably to have um, taken away a whole lot of difference from the perspective of the naked eye. Both contractors had the same basic purpose. Presumably, they both built in a similar area, maybe even the same basic place. We're told that a storm is going to hit here, and it's the same storm that hits both homes. They probably used the same similar kind of house plan. They probably utilized many of the same kinds of components. The, the difference lay in what you could not see. In other words, the difference was what was below the surface, beyond what you could notice with the naked eye. One built on solid rock, but you'd never know that by looking at how pretty the house was from the outside. The other built on shifting, unstable, insecure ground. Now, let me just ask this morning, because what we need to do is to take this principle and turn it inwardly and apply it spiritually. Jesus would have us ask ourselves this morning, are you building your life on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ? Maybe a better way to ask the question is to make it personal. What are you building your life on? What are you building your life on? What's most important to your life around which your life tends to revolve? If you're unsure about that, you could take the Philippians 121 test where Paul says, though we'll stop at the end, Paul says, for to me to live is blank. And then you fill in the blank. What would you put in the blank? For to me to live is what? For to me to live is work. For to me to live is kids. For to me to live is money. For to me to live is fishing. Oh my, for to me 
to live is golf? I mean, what, what would you fill in the blank? What is it that your life revolves around upon which you are building your life? Or better yet, those of you that are parents and grandparents here today, give this test to your kids. Have them answer the question, what would they say if we said, fill in the blank, for to my dad to live is blank. From the observation of your children, what would they put in the blank? What would your daughter put in the blank, mothers? For to my mom to live is blank. How would they feel in that? That's probably a better way because we tend to mask the true motivations of our hearts based on what we know that ought to be. But kids have a way of being really honest. What would they put if they completed that sentence? Well, of course, Paul did complete it from his own perspective. He was speaking for himself in what should be the way we all as followers of the Lord Jesus complete the sentence. What did he say? For to me to live is what? For to me to live <clears throat> is Christ. See, if you put anything else other than Christ in that blank, it means that you're building <clears throat> on shifting sand. You have no foundation because none of that stuff is a real foundation because none of that stuff ever lasts. It just gets washed away with time. Isn't that right? Most people are never satisfied with what they have, and that's why anything else in there, you might be satisfied for it for a while, but then the news gonna wear off. <clears throat> you won't be satisfied with it for the long term. See, this is the thing about defining success by all of that stuff that the world says you have to have in order to be a successful person because that always changes, it always changes. The goalpost that society sets as a measure of success, the goalposts are always moving. But the scriptural goalpost of success never moves. It is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. For to me to live is Christ. That's the foundation a wise builder builds his life or her life upon. And because the Bible says it, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. Not that we'll stand the storm ultimately that we will encounter when we stand one day before a holy God in the judgment. So a life that lasts means you better build on the right foundation. And the only solid and dependable foundation is the solid rock who is Jesus Christ. Anything else is shifting, silty, shaky, unstable, undependable sand. So make sure you're building on the right foundation. Second, blueprints are meant to be followed. That's a second takeaway from this passage. There is a master design. It comes from the master designer and God doesn't want you to take the master plan and cast casual glances at it. He wants you to know it inwards, outwards, from top to bottom and then organize your life around his master design. Jesus is not only comparing two kinds of builders here, but the larger point that he's making is that these men represent two kinds of people, both of whom would profess to follow after Jesus Christ. Both have been exposed to the gospel. Both of them actually have some kind of verbal profession 
so as to communicate that they follow Jesus Christ as Lord. Both of them would say about Jesus, he is Lord, Lord. But the strength of the person's foundation is found, Jesus says, in not what they say about him, not what they profess about him, but what that person does with the gospel that they hear, or to put it in building terms, that the reality of that person's faith is found in the care and concern that they put in following the designer's master plan. Now, both these builders heard the word of God, but that's only half the story, and you do have to hear the word of God. And you do have to have a verbal confession about Christ. Isn't that right? Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. So that does have to be present, <clears throat> but it's not just that. The one who builds on the sure foundation is the one who not only hears and the one who not only professes, but the one who does what? Say it out loud. The one who obeys, that's right. That's the critical factor. Jesus says in verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what? Do not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he is like. And then he goes on with the story. So building a life that lasts, building a home that lasts, building a marriage and a family that lasts always involves following the blueprints. You've got to follow the blueprints, the designer's instruction. And to make that clear, who is the designer? The designer is God. It's his instructions, not your plans that matter. Man, I could preach a sermon on that right there, how we often substitute our plan for God's plan. That's what Jesus said to his mother in the first miracle he ever did when he changed the water into wine and Jesus, or Jesus, his mother Mary, comes to him and she says, they have no more wine. And then Jesus turns and says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Because he knew that Mary was trying to force her plan on him. Reveal who you are to all these people. Let's just go ahead and do it because I know who you are and they need to know who you are. Let's rush it up and do it right now. It was her time, but it wasn't God's time. And so you have to realize that. The master designer is God and the master plan is this book, the word of God. And a life that's genuinely transformed by faith is a life that not only professes verbally, that Jesus is Lord, Lord, but one whose life backs it up, one whose life is patterned according to the principles of God's word, one who lives by the word of God. The Bible says that in the book of James, James 1.22, take a look. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Then what's the next phrase? Say it out loud deceiving yourself. In fact, let's just say that whole verse together. Ready? Together. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. That's right. He says later in chapter 2, verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Yeah. And then later on in chapter four, he will say, even the demons, what? Even the demons believe. They have a verbal confession about Christ. They would point to Jesus and say, yep, he's Lord, Lord. Now we don't live that way, but we know who he is. 
Now, let's be clear. Y'all still with me? Say amen. James is not saying that you have to do good deeds in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. Salvation is by faith alone through means of God's grace alone. Your good works will never measure up to the holiness of God. Your very best will always fall short. There is none that doeth good, not even one. Being always comes before doing when it comes to salvation. So you're saved by faith according to God's grace, but there's always a doing. If you're a genuine believer whose heart has been transformed, where there is genuine repentance, there will be a genuine obedience when it comes to living your life in faithfulness to Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus will say it earlier in this sermon here in Luke chapter 6. Each tree is known by its own what? By its own fruit. That's right. That's how you tell. That's how you know. So the wise builder is the one securely founded on the rock who is Jesus Christ. He's trusted Christ to save him by faith alone. The reality of her faith is evidenced in the ministry that she does. What that person believes in their heart is put into practice in a way that's visible, in a way that's obvious. What a person truly knows about Jesus is always revealed in how a person truly lives for Jesus. Jesus said in John 15 and five, he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. And that takes us to a final thought about building a home that lasts, building a life that lasts, building a marriage that lasts, building a family that lasts. You begin with the right foundation, which is Jesus Christ. You stay true to the designer's instructions, which is the word of God. Everybody with me so far, would you say amen? And then finally, build with quality. Cause a storm is coming. Build with quality because a storm is coming. You do know, don't you, that storms are common to every believer? And so knowing that, I've often said before, man, when you know something's 100% certainty, only a fool would not prepare for something that they know is 100% certainty. If you invite me to your home and there's 100% certainty that your dog is going to bite me on the ankle when I walk in the door, I ain't coming. Not coming. If I'm scheduled to fly out tomorrow morning on Southwest Airlines for Nashville, Tennessee, and I knew there was a 100% certainty that the plane would not make it, I ain't getting on the plane. I'm packing the car. Can I have an amen? Only a fool would get on the plane knowing that that was absolute. And the same is true with life. Storms are coming. I'm just telling you that. You may be feeling great. I'm not, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. Don't want to be a Debbie Downer. I want you to lift, leave excited. I want to lift people up today. <clears throat> but a part of my responsibility as a preacher of the gospel is to tell the truth of the gospel. To make sure people are prepared for life. And life is full of storms. And many times they'll blow up unexpectedly salvation I don't care what you see on Christian television salvation does not shield you from storms 
The idea that the Christian life's all prosperity, no suffering, man, that's just theologically unbiblical, theologically untenable, practically unproductive. So don't go there. The Bible says in 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Don't be surprised when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So storms are gonna come. Shouldn't be surprised, but you should be prepared. And in this story, Jesus tells us about a pretty significant storm that fell on both these houses. Now, we're not talking about a gentle spring shower. I mean, we got rain falling. It's interesting. You need to read this passage in conjunction with the passage that Jesus tells in Matthew 7. It's the same story, basically, but with a little different twist. When you put these two stories together, man, you got rain falling down, you got streams rising up, you got gale force winds, the Bible says, that blew and beat against the house. So there's water falling from the sky, water rising from the ground, winds blowing on every side. Have you ever been in a storm like that? And I don't just mean a physical storm, I'm talking about a life storm that was like that, where you couldn't get away from the water. You couldn't get away from the deluge. You couldn't get away from the wind. It was just beating and smashing and surfing and blowing. And it was just beating the life out of you. You say, well, no, sir, I've never been in a storm like that. Buckle up, baby, buckle up. Because you will, unless the Lord comes again. And it'd be all right with me if he came this afternoon. I'm ready. But storms are with us in a broken, fallen world. When they do come, can I just say, you can tell who's built with quality. And you can tell who's cutting corners in terms of the way they build their life. Because storms reveal the integrity of your structure. They reveal the genuineness of your faith. Only a storm can reveal how mature a person is in their walk with Jesus Christ, whether or not they've legitimately built on the rock or whether they've built on sand. Now, this Mediterranean storm proved the integrity of those structures, didn't it? Or the lack thereof because there was one house only suffered minor damage, the house that was built by the wise men. Only a few shingles gone. I mean, it, it, got, it got knocked around pretty good. Some shingles gone, maybe a shutter or two blown off its hinges, but it still stood strong. The structure was fine. But then the consequences were far more severe for the builder who'd cut corners. Because the storm, same storm, same storm, built, hit, hit his house, same intensity, same force. But because he didn't think the foundation was all that important, he didn't think the foundation really mattered all that much. The ground shifted during the storm, causing the entire structure to collapse. That's what Jesus says in verse 49. When the stream broke against it, Immediately, it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I've seen it happen many times 
over the years in the house of God. So have many of you. Somebody will come into the church. They'll get established in the church. They'll start out strong. They've got a wonderful house, man. They look good on the outside. They're moving. They're shaking. They're blowing. And they're going beautifully designed. But later on, it's revealed they really didn't have much of a foundation. We didn't know it because all we could see was that exterior structure. And at first, that looked pretty good. But then when that storm hit, everything changed because when that storm hit, they kind of got blown away. And when they got blown away, they fell away. You never see them again. And the reason that happens is because they were building their life on something or some things other than Christ. And when the other things could not help them through the storm and they will never be able to do it. In their disillusionment, they walk away because their life really had no foundation. But again, I want you to be sure that you notice the larger context here because it's not so much building so as to withstand these seasonal storms that we all experience this side of heaven. I think Jesus has a larger point that he's teaching to this crowd and then to us. What he wants us to know is that we better be sure that we're prepared not for seasonal storms, but you better make sure you're prepared for the big one, for the storm that is to come, which is referred to in other parts of scripture as the fires of judgment. Because that one we're all gonna face. When this life is over and we find ourselves standing face to face with a holy God, nobody else around, you will not go through the judgment with anybody else. It'll just be you and a holy God. And it's in that moment, in that critical storm that is to come, where the integrity of your life will finally and forever be revealed. And it'll be obvious to the one who's doing the evaluation. Now, there's no question. Again, you have to confess Jesus is Lord. You have to confess it with your mouth in order to be saved. But if you confess Jesus is Lord with your mouth and fail to obey him with your life, at the judgment of Christ, that confession will be revealed as an empty confession and you will not be able to withstand the storm that is sure to blow on that great and marvelous day. Jesus was very clear in Matthew 7, not everyone who says unto me, what? Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying there. What he's saying to us today here at Hillcrest is you can say you believe the Bible. You can say that you've trusted Christ and his cross. You can say that you even call Jesus Lord, Lord, and you can still, having done all of those things, end up in the darkness of hell when it's all said and done. Because Jesus made it clear that at the judgment, he'll declare even to some preachers and to some healers, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never 
knew you. Let me just say it this morning. To confess Jesus as Lord, Lord, and then fail to follow him with obedient faith, to fail to follow him and to give glory to him with your life is really not much different than what we might call a Judas kiss. Judas kissed the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing him with his mouth, but his life made no difference. And that's what you don't want to do in the kingdom of God. You don't want to honor him with your lips, all the while having a heart far from him. So let's not be naive. Storms are coming, including the big one. And when it does, let's make sure we built our life on the right foundation. Make sure that we're living not with a lip service faith, but with real, genuine, repentant, life-changing, obedient faith. Let's make sure that we can legitimately say, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen this morning.